Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 3, Pilot Pushing. For the first generation of professional airline pilots, the most persistent problem was not low pay, but safety, and the related question of job security. A pilot who played it too safe or canceled flights too often because of weather or some other consideration could get fired. Airline operators had a hard-nosed attitude about schedule completion in those days and tended to regard overly conservative pilots as slackers. This kind of thinking was an outgrowth of the contemporary notion regarding competition, the belief that people had to be pushed to achieve a satisfactory competitive edge. From the operator's point of view, the fledgling airline industry had to meet the competition, railroads. But unless airlines ran on a schedule like the railroads did, no one would take them seriously. The pilots were skeptical about entering a competition with the railroads for the sensible reason that it could get them killed. They knew that any serious effort to compete with the railroads in the area of scheduled reliability would most likely fall heavily upon them and would put pressure on them to take risks. More bluntly, in the 1920s, the pilots worried less about being taken seriously by the airline business moguls, but rather how they were being taken advantage of. In truth, there were two sides to this question. Some pilots were overly timid, reluctant to adopt new instrument flying techniques that began to appear during the late 1920s and early 1930s. They were slow to abandon the old-fashioned visual flying techniques that had seen them through so many flights before. On the other hand, some operators were prematurely ready to adopt new flying techniques and equipment that later turned out to have serious flaws. They may have also been too hasty in their dismissal of the pilots' weather-related complaints. Although conflict between pilots and their management regarding when and how to fly is an old story, tracing back to the beginning of regular airmail flying, the pace of technological change in the late 20s and early 30s aggravated the situation. Pilots and operations managers could not agree on the issue of pilots' authority to cancel a flight because of unsafe conditions. In a sense, it was a question of public image. By the early 1930s, the operators preferred to promote commercial aviation as an industry that had arrived, one that was fully developed, mature, and no longer experimental. The pilots knew better and preferred a more conservative image, one that portrayed the industry as it really was, essentially a new tax-supported public service. Because it was still heavily dependent upon the government airmail subsidy, the pilots insisted that airline service should be seen as a regulated public utility, with safety dominant over every other consideration. This conflict of assumptions and image set the stage for a battle over safety that continues to this day. Safety's roots are deep in the history of commercial aviation, and one of those keys to ALPA's growth and success lies in the way David Benke utilized this issue in the 1930s. In theory, 
airline owners agreed with their pilots that safety was the paramount goal. In practice, it was a different story. Early airline pilots were made to feel that arriving on time counted for more than arriving safely, albeit late. Of course, everyone wanted both safety and regularity of schedules, but to the pilots, it was evident that the two were not always compatible. The operators agreed with this in principle. However, in specific cases, the reason given by pilots for canceling flights were not always acceptable to them, particularly if it cost the company money. It all boiled down to the question of command authority. Who had it and when? The issue of pilot pushing, or forcing a pilot to fly against his better judgment, was serious, particularly in the last days of the single-engine airmail operations, when passengers were still scarce. In the easy-money climate of the 1920s, a time of cheap non-union labor and readily available materials, airline owners could well afford an occasional smashed airplane and dead pilot. At the Boeing Air Transport Division of what later became United Airlines, the Cheyenne Repair and Maintenance Base would frequently salvage only the registration number of a crashed aircraft and then proceed to build an entirely new airplane around it. They could go rebuild a Boeing 40 B-4 far better, stronger than before, said Reuben Wagner, one of ALPA's founding members. I don't think anybody ever bothered to tell the Bureau of Air Commerce either. With the arrival of more expensive multi-engine equipment, airline owners became less casual about the loss of aircraft and hints of pilots. But even then, a pilot had no recourse but to fly if a determined operations manager disputed his decision to cancel. Closely allied to the issue of pilot pushing was the related one of competitive flying, a managerial technique that took advantage of a pilot's natural desire to compete with each other, to see who could get through the fastest or perform under the most trying circumstances. Operations managers, themselves pilots, used this device to urge their pilots into flying contests. Some pilots liked it. Most didn't. David Banke's earliest known utterances on the subject of pilot unionization stemmed directly from the sour feeling instilled by competitive flying. In 1928, Banke was elected governor of the Central District of the National Air Pilots Association, or NAPA, one of the several semi-social pilots organizations that flourished in the 1920s. Some airlines were using cash incentives to encourage pilots to fly in marginal weather, and Banky was speaking for the majority when he urged Napa to adopt the slogan, Don't Overfly a Brother Pilot. By that, Banky meant that if one working pilot refused to fly the mail, then his brother pilot should support him. Unfortunately, working pilots made up only a tiny percentage of those who claimed membership in Napa so Banky got nowhere with his campaign. In a sense, Banky's failure to accomplish anything useful through Napa, particularly in the area of curbing competitive flying, was one of the reasons that later led to the creation of the Airline Pilots Association. Jim Belding of United Airlines remembered Banky's denunciation of the evils of competitive flying as one of the main reasons junior pilots were attracted to ALPA in the beginning. 
Belding said that Banky and the senior guys didn't include the most junior pilots in ALPA when they started it up in 1931 because they had no protection to offer them. Belding was one of those junior pilots. At that time, the company could find co-pilots off the street if they had to. Then, in January 1933, when Belding got his first command, flying single-engine night mail, he was transferred to Omaha. David Banky met him one night when Belding came in off the line in Chicago, and they talked in his car. Belding hadn't really been approached before. Banky said they couldn't guarantee too much for a newly promoted pilot, but Belding joined ALPA because there was one management pilot who was not instrument trained, who was notorious for pushing pilots. This management pilot was a good example of a weather pusher. That is, he would push pilots to fly in bad conditions in order to make his own record look good. For instance, a senior pilot would go out on a route and get through because he knew the route very well. Then another pilot, who wasn't as familiar with the route, would reluctantly take it. Many of these less experienced pilots never completed the route and were found among the wreckage on top of hills. Belding pointed to the management's pilots' intimidation tactics as the reason why these pilots chose to fly unfamiliar routes. It was only when a pilot got killed that the airline found out about the management pilot's weather pushing and fired him. Needless to say, to get through the 1920s in one piece and stay on the payroll was no mean feat. But the first generation of professional pilots accepted the risks of the flying game the way it was often flying under circumstances modern pilots today would never accept. An airmail pilot working for the post office department in 1918 stood only a one in four chance of surviving until 1926, when the private contractors took over. The situation improved only slightly thereafter, and as late as the mid-1930s, Banky was scoring well in debates with the operators by citing the risk factor. A favorite rhetorical device of his was to remind audiences, in a solemn tone, that one airline pilot perished in the line of duty every so many days. It could have hardly hurt Banky's cause to emphasize the danger theme because it was a major factor in the public's fascination with flying, and one that the pilots encouraged. In the 1920s, particularly following Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, Professional airmen were socially in because the public was absolutely air-crazy. Any schoolboy of the time could tell you about the aviation feats of Bert Acosta, the Hunter Brothers, and countless others. Although early pilots faced long odds on living long enough to fill a nursing home bed, there were other non-monetary compensations. The way kids looked up to you. The thrill of handling the most advanced airplanes in the world the knowledge that you had a job most men envied. We must remember that the typical airline pilot of that era was a very young man, far younger than the typical airline pilot of today. For young men, mortality is only an abstraction, and the bottom line isn't what's on a paycheck. The pay wasn't really that bad either, even during the Depression. It was the threat of pay cuts, rather than the reality of them, that worried most pilots. The hours were reasonably short, 
compared with the usual lot of the working class from which most pilots came. And working pilots were beginning to move well up into middle class, a far cry from their gypsy status as barnstormers a few years before. Many a pilot was the first in his family line to have the leisure to take up the previously aristocratic game of golf. Or, if improving a golf swing wasn't a concern, there was enough time to run a business. In some respects, airline flying was just the same as it is today. It was a good job a lot of people wanted badly, but also wanted to get paid for it, even if they'd gladly do it for free. They wanted the romance of wearing a snug-fitting aviator's cap and goggles, wanted the looks of admiration they got from their family and friends, and it could get an eligible bachelor married. On the other hand, flying could get a wife widowed. The issue of pilot pushing came to a head when just such a widow filed a lawsuit, charging that her airline pilot husband had been pushed to his death by an overzealous superior. The pilot's name was Joe Livermore, the airline was Northwest, and the year was 1936. We'll talk about the Livermore affair in Chapter 5, but the roots of his death stretch back to 1919, when the pilots of the post office's airmail service went on strike rather than submit to weather pushing. The airline pilot of today, who wishes to know their own professional roots, must now return to 1919, the first full year of peace following World War I. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 3 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2019. All rights reserved. <laughs>